Father, you are most gracious. Father, just uh, we pray your blessing upon this morning. Father, that your word might be taught, Father, and it might be taught in such a way that glorifies, magnifies, and lends itself to Jesus Christ and all his majesty. Father, thank you for those that have come out to this morning, Father. Lord, we pray that, uh, Lord, we might have ears to hear just what you want us to hear, Father. Anything other than that, Lord, snatch from our ears. Father, we thank you for your blessings and this day in Christ's name. Amen. So let's open our Bibles to start with. Kind of get a get a running start at it that way. We'll, we'll get a running start at it with some scripture. The topic this morning is, is sex within the marriage. So it's it's a little bit sensitive. I'm going to try to be as, as, as um, um, comfortable with it as I can be and, and give it the reverence that it needs. So if you'll turn your, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, let's do chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 6. And this is kind of, kind of going to be the, the, the crux of the text, but we're going to be drawn from, from all kinds of different places. So well, let's start with this one, kind of get, a ground, get, get our feet on the ground here. In verse 12 it says, All things are lawful for me, but not, all, not everything is beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be controlled by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now God indeed raised the Lord, and he will raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that anyone who has united with a prostitute is one body with her? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But the one united with the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits is outside of the body, but, immor but the immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you are bought at a price, Therefore, glorify God with your body. Now, I was brought up in the 1950s and 1960s, as some of you folks were. Obviously, was, you know, there's, there's a few of us in here that were there. And the subject we're going to discuss, it wasn't even allowed to be spoken in our home, in my home. I, had, uh, I grew up in a Christian home, but the, the, you know, just the mention of the word uh, would get me in, you know, just to say sex, would get me in trouble with my parents, especially my mother, so I kind of grew up with this idea early on that sex was taboo, that we didn't talk about these things, that you know, uh, there was some, almost something sinister about it. And uh, typically growing up, you know, I'll be honest with you, as an as a, uh, adolescent, teenage boy, our, our uh, manuals were penthouse and playboy, you know, because it just wasn't, it just wasn't discussed or talked about anything else. So it's kind of, you know, people we, as youth, you got that from, a, you know, someone went out and stole one from a convenience store or maybe found something in dad's stuff somewhere. I mean, that's, that's the way it was in the 50s and 60s. And uh, I'm hoping this morning we can put it in a much more uh, uh, glorifying way that how it was actually intended from the beginning. 
hopefully we can do this in a a God-honoring way. Now last week and the previous weeks, we continue to see how Christ and the church were lived out through us in a oneness and the relationship of husband and wife. So this week, like I said, we're going to take a look at that oneness more from a, from a physical side between husband and wife, which strangely brings us back to the spiritual oneness. So when we read in, in the last part of verse 16 and, and into verse 17, it said the two shall become one flesh, but the one united with the Lord is one spirit with him. Now this is kind of a crazy thing to wrap our heads around. Sexual oneness and spiritual oneness in the marriage, they're identified together. You know, think about this. This, this is giving us a vision of, of the sexual union that is so Christ-centered, lovely, and worshipful that we could and should, in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Why? Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. It's obvious Paul is talking about our subject here. Look at its context. If we understand that our bodies and what we do with them are holy, they're bought, a temple, how can we even think about doing anything that might taint or forfeit the glory of God that's revealed in this this great gift of sexual union? So, before we start this little journey together, question, when was sex created? Anybody got a verse, got a knowledge? Oh, come on. Genesis, there's a start. Verse. Hint, 2.24. Okay. Did someone find that? Can you read it? Therefore, yes, they become one flesh. Okay, so another question. Was that before the fall of man? Very good, thank you. It was, it was, it was before the fall of man. So, was it before sin then? Yes, so... So sex and marital relationship was not out of sin or in sin. There was an innocence in the garden. They were naked. Didn't bother either one of them. Everything God God said before the fall was good. So guess what? The subject we're talking about this morning before God is good. Okay. So, did God's views on sex change after the fall of man? That's a more tougher question, isn't it? Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 13. I'm talking slow. Verse 4, so we can kind of get there. It says, let the marriage bed marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, etc. So that's going to bring us to our first place here. 
of the three, we're going it's a the place of sexual union in marriage. And we're going to look at, beyond reproduction, why did God give sex? Where does it fit in the life of the marriage? And to do that, let's look at it in three different ways. The sexual union and worship, these are kind of going to be the topics I think you've got in your outline. Sexual union as love for your spouse. And oneness, the, inwards, the, the inward rewards and the outward. Now most of us, when we took our wedding vows, understood, or at least... Uh, should have understood that uh, we were making a, uh, make a covenant with, uh, with each other. There was a contract there. That was the idea of the marriage. It was the marriage covenant. In doing so, most of us understood that the marriage was consummated with the sexual union. Now, there's a lot of states that still annul marriages based on the fact it was not consummated. So God-honoring sexual union happens between one man and one woman within the marriage covenant as an expression of faith and worship towards God. It symbolizes, as we read earlier, the leaving of the family, as in Genesis 2.24. That is why a man, his father, man leaves his father and mother, unites with his wife, and they become, they become a new family. So as we work through this, we need to understand that the sexual union during the years of marriage, it doesn't make a marriage. That doesn't make a marriage. It does, however, express a marriage. It encourages a marriage. It offers a special form of physical pleasure. It's an expression of love and care and service in marriage. And above all else, sexual union shows us this one flesh picture of the invisible, eternal, one spirit reality of Christ and his church. So beyond the pleasure, it's immensely important. And that's what we're going to try to convey this morning is the importance of it. And we're going to do that First of all, as we look at sexual union as worship. So then we say that sexual union of a husband and wife in marriage is worship. I'm going to quote John Henderson in a, in a book of his. He wrote, the couple is united in a physical, physical and temporal expression and experience of an invisible, spiritual, and eternal union of Christ and his bride. So then, the two shall become one flesh. It's God's idea. It celebrates our union with Christ in marriage as to glorify God with our bodies, which was said in verse 20. So I want us to understand this is, this is a godly thing. This is, this is important. In verse uh, six, or chapter 6, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? If we've been saved through Jesus Christ, we're now members of his body. As Christ prayed to be one with the Father, so we become physically and spiritually with our spouse. You know, think about the gravity of that statement. Uh, Tim and Kathy Keller write in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, they say, indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively, exclusively, exclusively to you. In other words, sex is God's renewal, covenant renewal service. As we said earlier, when we married, we're entering into a covenant, and that covenant is renewed when we come together in sexual unity. Let's look at the text in, in verse, uh, in uh, First Corinthians 
in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. Now let's pull it all together as it conveys the idea of who we are in Christ concerning our sexual relationship as man. So I'm just going to pull from these verses and let's see if we can kind of pull it together through these verses and see what it says. If we start with verse uh, 14, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Verse 17, but the one united with the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 19, or you, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Verse 20, therefore glorify God with your body. So if we pull that from Scripture and we see that there, it compactly tell, it's kind of a commentary on that sexual union between husband and wife. A proper spirit-filled union of man and wife glorifies God in the marriage. We're helping one another enjoy the union to Christ by offering ourselves our, our sexual union to God. So let's look at it again in another way. And I know I'm kind of speeding through this, but there's a lot of a lot of text and a lot of material here. Sexual union as, as love for your spouse. Look at 1 Corinthians. I'm going to flip there and let's go to chapter 7. We're in chapter 6, so it should just be an easy flip over to chapter 7. A husband in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 3. A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Is it not the wife who has the rights to her own body but the husband? In the same way, is it not the husband who has the rights to his own body but the wife? Do not deprive each other except by mutual agreement for a specified time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then resume your relationship so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So we may see these verses as how they kind of how they kind of correspond to those when it when it says you are not your own. Back in what we read before, it said we are not our own. This verse kind of these verses kind of correspond with this. They're saying you're not your own, wife, husband. Husband belongs to the wife. Just as we've been taught, just as we've been just as we've been bought with a with a price by Christ, so it is the marriage covenant. The idea of being owned by another, that being our spouse, selflessness. Your body is not your own, but that of your spouse. Let's read it. It goes both ways. If you notice that, one verse is just as powerful as the second verse. It goes both ways. You know, we kind of have this idea, I know from our generation, that it's all about the guy. You know, but the Bible is very specific here. It goes both ways. And for men, it's kind of a natural thing. But it wasn't from the start. God did not have that plan from the start. Now, God's ideas have always been that it works both ways. And here again, the idea here is not in taking, but the idea is in giving. Christ gave himself for us. How much more should we be willing to give ourselves to our mate? This is how we show our love for our spouse when we let ourselves be completely vulnerable. And that, you know, when everything else is taken away, in, including our clothes, that makes us vulnerable. The spouse we are with becomes our pure focus and, and their joy 
and their happiness. That's what we're looking for. And when the husband and wife share in giving one another, it truly does become magical. The same can be said about Christ in our lives. When he is our reason for living and our only joy is giving him praise and adoration. If we bring in some of the attributes that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we see there we're finding that giving each other is not self-serving. It's patient. It's kind. It never ends, which lends itself to these verses that we've been talking about. As I said earlier, it's not taking. Our, bod our bodies belong to our respective mates. Sometimes when giving it, it may be more passionate than others, sometimes more maintenance, sometimes with more exhilaration. The premise is that our love for our Savior and our spouse makes us one with each other. In verse 5, it says not to deprive each other, which that doesn't mean that in times of fatigue or illness, uh, it, it, may be if, it may be difficult. It also says, it also means that abstaining means mutual consent. Spouses need to be considerate those times, letting the, other, letting the other one know in gentler terms, not just backhanded, not now. As we noted in the, in the verse, a good reason for abstaining, the best reason for abstaining, is devoting yourselves to prayer. Now, aside, aside from this, we should consider sexual service a privilege by God and a ministry by and a ministry to our spouse. Now, why? Why is that so? Well, it's because of the end of the verse. We have this idea that once we've tied the knot, I can do anything I need, anything I want. I mean, it, you know, who cares? Or if the sexual relationship is a lot more more platonic, meaning that the husband and wife have not become one towards each other. Satan knows that it's easier to divide two than it is to divide one. A husband who sees the marriage as just sexual and provides no comfort and understanding to a spouse, he's just opening the door to Satan. God knows our hearts, and they are deceitfully wicked. If we withhold from our spouse, we're opening the door for Satan to bring increased temptation into our lives and to the lives of our mates. It would not... It would not be in here, in his word, if God didn't take this seriously. It's really pretty simple. If our spouse can't get what they want at home, be it sex from the wife or the wife who deserves, who gets no joy from the reunion, then temptation, temptation sets in. Now, having said that, there's no excuse for adultery. It's not unavoidable because one spouse, spouse withholds his or her body from the other. No person needs sex so bad that it becomes necessary. Let's face the facts, though. If a young woman presents her body to a married man who desires and doesn't, does not get at home, temptation is great. Or some young man, handsome young man, or a man who provides friendship and understanding to a woman that she doesn't get at home, the temptation is great. So God's giving us at the end of the verse, the reason, he says, our lack of self-control. So we need to be diligent in the areas of our sexual relationships. Always aware of the tempters. He's standing right behind us. Why? Because we lack self-control, as the scripture said. Now that brings us into oneness. The, the inwards, inward rewards with the outward. Now I'm a true believer in that statement. 
The inward, inward rewards the outward. It's that way in all of life, not just with our sexual partners. The idea that Christ in me, the hope of glory, that, that excites me and it guides my life as it should all our, all our lives. And so it is with being one with my wife. There could be no other earthly feeling more satisfying and joyful. When God put us together, as with all he did before the fall, it was good. Of course, now sin taints that which was perfectly good. But the concept of God's oneness, that is, God's oneness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is eternal. So being one's not something new, either physically or spiritually. Adam said in Genesis 21, 2, 21, and 23, the Lord God made a woman from that part he had taken out of man, and he brought her to man. Then man said, this is at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So from the very beginning, they were one. She was part of him, and he part of her, because physically, he was, she was taken from him. It's not hard to get more, any more one than that, and that's what God expects of us. When we're working towards becoming one with each other, our lives converge. Her thoughts become my thoughts. We like to eat the same foods. When she hurts, I hurt. Uh, we, even, we even learned to stride together. You know, when we were first married, I would take off and, and just start striding down the road. I have long legs. She has short legs. And she was always saying, hold up, I'm back here. But over time, as that oneness became closer, then our stride started matching. Now it's kind of, it's kind of lengthened a little more because, because of her breathing problems and I'm having to, I kind of find myself striding out a little more and having to look back and go back to her, but nevertheless it's there. And I find, we find out that uh, you know, her hand fits perfectly in mine. Her hand fits perfectly in mine. We're one. <clears throat> now the one flesh thing seems, or is, I guess, actually is, it doesn't seem, it's pretty much Christian regarding marriage. The men and women, <clears throat> but we are, men, as men and women, we're still pretty different. Because a lot of times I don't have a clue what she's thinking. And we've been married 47 years, and I still, you know, I don't have a clue. And I'm pretty sure she can say the same about me. And that's usually when I say something stupid. Like, what were you thinking? You know, so it's there, it's there. Uh, now we talk, her and I both now, we talk a lot about adventure because we're retired. So everything we do now is kind of an adventure for us, you know. But you know, when I look at this and start thinking about it, you know, yes, it's been a lifelong adventure to learn and to understand that this woman that I live with, um, she's so very different than me, but she's still one with me. And we've learned a lot in these years about oneness, but I hope and pray that we're still teachable in life as well as a marriage bed. And that's kind of a note I'd like to give for, you know, to the newlyweds or those thinking about marriage or maybe you haven't been married very long. It's also good to take a sense of humor and, and forgiveness uh, into the marital bed when you're, when you're young. So, so, great to, so, so the great mystery we've talked about of one becoming two foreshadows a greater mystery of two becoming one. Now God's math 
It's pretty weird. It's not like when we went to college. We got one and one equals one, which is a little bit strange. But that's God's math. That's what he said in 224. That is why a man leaves his mother, his father and mother, unites with his wife, and they become one new flesh. Now, the one flesh is greater than the two that preceded it. Just like the gospel, in marriage we find ourselves as we give ourselves away. In Luke 9, 23, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me daily. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Like the gospel, in order to become one, things have to change, and they will change as we grow towards that. So in the world we live, we live in now and since the 60s, uh, you know, since I remember the, the sexual revolution happened, of course, that was when, at the, where I came from Oklahoma, they didn't have till the 70s. But the rest of the world, east and west coast, happened in the 60s. But where I came from, small town Oklahoma, didn't happen till the 70s. But I do remember then, in the late 60s and early 70s, and during that sexual revolution, that um, everybody was going to try on marriage. They were going to try on a relationship. We're going to try this on. And, and the big term back then was like, like a pair of shoes, which <clears throat> I just never could get that. It's just, just weird. Anyway, so everybody was going to try on a marriage. You know, we weren't going to get married. We are going to live together. Um, uh, the, irony, the irony of that is that the divorce rate now is higher than the divorce rate then. So it's kind of like, you know, okay. But the idea, you know, it means, to me that means neither one of them are, you know, the trying on thing, neither one of them are committed. So how do you really know whether that's going to work if neither one's committed. So commitment is, is essential to the marriage. My mother, bless her heart, she set me up on a blind date. How many in here have ever been set up by your parent on a blind date? Oh, come on. Tell me I'm not the only one. Come on. Maybe I am. I see one other hand. Wow. <clears throat> okay, so my mom, I was about 19, set me up on a blind date. Now, you know, at first you're thinking, why, why would she do that? Well, the girl's dad owned a newspaper. There might have been a little, you know, hey. So, so anyway, so we had lunch together. And what I remember about this lunch was, I don't know how, because, you know, a first date, the things you talk about on a first date, how does marriage come up on the first date? I mean, or even a blind date. But it did. It did. It came up. It's like, well, you, okay, here she's talking about it. I guess, I guess she's got a reason. But we were talking about that, and she made a remark to me that stuck with me all these years. She said, you know, oh, well, if it doesn't work out, we can get a divorce and move on. Is that commitment? Is that trying on a marriage? You know, God has determined that a marriage is an all-in it's all in. It's all or nothing for both sides. There's, there's no trying. There's no 50-50. That was another big one. Gosh, that was big in a lot of counseling back in the 60s, 70s. I think in the, even in the 80s, it may be still in, in it today that a marriage is a 50-50 situation. It's not. It's 100-100. That's the way God's determining. God's determining it's 100%, 100%. And that's that oneness that we're talking about. That's the oneness. Marriage does not consist of the number of experiences we have, but the depth of those commitments. 
So we lose ourselves as two to find ourselves as one. If you stand back and look at it, it's scary. Uh, I am still who I am, but I'm also becoming something else. Parts of me will be blended into someone else and they into me. I like, there was a quote by Thomas Howard concerning the mystery of love as God planned it. It says that no one can ever figure out who is doing the giving and who is doing the receiving. Know that giving and receiving are a splendid and hilarious paradox in which, lo, the giving becomes receiving and the receiving giving until the, all the efforts to sort it out collapse in merriment and ad, adoration. And this is partly worked out in the, marriage un, in, the, in the marriage union. Becoming one in life and in sexual unity, it's God's idea, as we stated earlier. It's his mercy and grace that make it pops, possible. Now there's some obstacles to enjoying to enjoying sexual union. There are lots of things that can come up and are obstacles to that enjoyable sexual union in marriage. Sexual deviation is seen as seen all the way through the scripture from the beginning to the end. It is used to depict sin against God in many forms, and other times it's used to show the unending mercy and grace of God to his children. So for this session, we're going to focus on four areas. Uh, we're going to look at, hopefully, maybe it's in the notes. I haven't even looked at them. We're going to look at adultery, pornography, past sexual abuse, and some significant other problems in the areas of marriage. First, let's take a look at adultery. Now, obviously, our scripture that we, were, we saw at the beginning kind of starts dealing with that. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits is outside the body in verse 18 of chapter 6, but the immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual perversion is humanity's problem from the get-go. We found from the front of the book of the Bible to the end of the book of the Bible, God's going to deal with adultery. It's at the top of the list. So what is adultery? Well, it's sexual union between a married person and someone who's not a spouse. Now, sexual adultery is prominent in this day, so much so that most people, most people don't even think about it much. A lot of people think it's even a given. We know of a, Doris and I know of a couple's wife, or a couple whose wife was caught in adultery by her husband, and her response was, go find another woman, have sexual relations with her, We'll call it even. But that's the way our society has gotten to be. It's a true story. So first God commands it and forbids it. Exodus 20:14, a real simple short verse. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So why is God so adamantly opposed to adultery? Well, we've seen how God's glory has, been, has so blessed the union of husband and wife that adultery taints the glory of God in a physical sense as well as a spiritual sense. He is so against adultery because of the precious image of Christ in the, marriage, in, in the church in marriage. God uses the picture of adultery all through the scripture to describe his tumultuous relationship with, the, with his people, the children of Israel, in Hosea, 
chapter 4, verse 12, he said, The wind of prostitution grows them astray. They commit spiritual adultery against their God. When we as Christians commit physical adultery, we're committing spiritual adultery with our God also. Solomon in the book of Proverbs said, and I'm not, this is the book of Proverbs saying, chapter 6, verse 32, look it up. It says, someone who commits adultery is stupid. They lack sense. And, you know, I'll read it to you. A man who commits adultery with a woman lacks sense. Whoever does it destroys his own life. So Solomon, in Proverbs, was pretty adamant about it also. So according to God's word, there can be and there are consequences for committing adultery. Now, they can be physical. They can be mental, like STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. I mean, how many times have, I know in my lifetime, I don't know how many times people have been found out in adultery simply because they've given their, their spouse some kind of sexually, sexually transmitted disease, which the disease even itself can be damaging to that person. But still yet, one of the worst things in my mind that comes from adultery is that what it teaches our children. The words I've heard in my lifetime from those who have been caught and subsequently even divorced was, it won't hurt the kids. It won't hurt anyone. They'll get over it. Kids, they don't understand. But the statistics show that up to 40% of divorces in Arkansas are due to infidelity of one of the partners. It also says 50% of the children who have gone through a divorce related to infidelity were more likely to divorce themselves by infidelity. So I, we had a, taught a youth group many years ago, and the numbers were similar back then. These I just looked up and had a young couple, and they were thinking about getting married. And, and I could tell from, I don't know what it was about their relationship or how they were acting. He'd come from a divorced family where infidelity was involved with the father. And I brought up those figures, and the first thing he said was, it will never happen to me because I've seen it. A year later, it happened to them because he'd seen it. So then as Proverbs 6 also says, it, it destroys our life. The harm, cries, the harm caused by infidelity can be immense. It crushes the other spouse. Why? What have I done wrong? Am I not worthy? What about commitment? God allows no excuses for infidelity. And that's why we must be on guard in our marriages, spouses, protective of each other. As I said earlier, we are capable of anything when it comes to sin, especially sexual sin, because it's so connected with our emotions. I remember one time, I'm just full of stories today. I remember one time Doris and I were at church and a young couple had, not young, I guess, but a couple had, had uh, been involved and uh, uh, infidelity was involved and, and we were talking about a church and we got home and we were lying up lying in bed together and, and she nestled up against me and said you know, you know bless you so sweetheart nestled up and she said honey that'll never happen to us and, and uh, of course I being the compassionate person that I am I said don't you believe it I'm capable of anything given the right time and the right situation you know how that went over? Like a lead balloon. She was crying. Yeah, I broke her heart. 
Yep, brilliance sometimes eludes me. Yep, did that time, that's for sure. It broke her heart. But the point being is sometimes we have to be aware that we are vulnerable. And that's what the scripture is trying to tell us here. Be aware that we are vulnerable. Don't make that statement, oh, it'll never happen to me. Be aware. Be consciously aware. So keep in mind what the scripture says. We've been bought with a price, and that's our body, soul, and spirit. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Sexual infidelity takes what belongs to God, that is the harmony that God has given in his grace from the start. Sexual infidelity is nothing more than selfishness. It's self-worship. It's self-glory. It's abusing and misusing the body and making an instrument of sin. Adultery is so heinous in the eyes of God, it represents the grounds for divorce in Matthew 5, 32. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for immorality, makes her commit adultery. Now, having said all that, all sins present and past can be forgiven by the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 9. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. No matter how ugly, no matter how frequent or flippant, all our sins have been nailed to the cross of our Savior Jesus Christ. They've been washed in his blood. They've been put away as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the eastern horizon is from the west, so he removes great, the guilt of our rebellious actions from us. And of course, the perfect example of that is the woman brought before Jesus at the temple in John chapter 8, where if you remember, starting with verse 4, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in asking him, he stood up straight and replied, Whoever among you is guiltless may cast the first stone. Then he bent over again and wrote on the ground. Now when they heard this, they began to drift away one at a time, starting with the older ones, until Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up straight and said, For woman, where are they? Did, they? did no one condemn you? And she replied, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, and from, from now on, sin no more. And then there's one of my favorites is Romans 8.1. Now for there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. What this means is we can be honest with God in the manner the woman we're married to or about to marry about our past. Be forgiven and be healed by the grace of God. James said, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may, not, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great effectiveness. As couples, if you've been involved with sin in the past, then Christ has freed you to be honest and walk in the light. You can repent, be forgiven, and be healed by the grace of God. Sometimes we need to deal honestly with sexual sin in our past in order to repent, be cleansed, and transformed for the future. You know, David, if you remember, he tried to hide his sexual sin, which only caused greater problems down the line. Who could forget Bathsheba? David said in some. 32.3, when I refused to confess my sin, my whole body wasted away while I groaned in pain all day long. For, all, for day and night you tormented me. You tried to destroy me in the intense heat of summer. 
Then he went on to give the solution in verse 32.5. Then I confessed my sin. I no longer covered up my wrongdoing. I said, I will confess my rebellious acts to the Lord. And then you, then you forgave me my sins. So confession before either your spouse or before the Lord. It's important. So open the book of those sins and face them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then you can sing with David in verse 31, or verse 1 of 32. How blessed is the one whose rebellious acts are forgiven, whose sin is pardoned. How blessed is the one whose wrongdoing the Lord has not punished, in whose spirit there is no deceit. So there is, there is hope, and that's in repentance when it comes to adultery. I'm moving on to the second thing, pornography. So let's define pornography. What's it mean? Well, sexual illicit material, either written, auditory, visual, that's including photographic, cinematic, virtual, or real. So pornography is meant to, to arouse emotions. It's self-gratification in a sexual sense. And it's, unfortunately, it's much more prevalent in men than women. But then again, the times are changing. Like gambling, pornography can be as addictive as cigarettes. It's, it's important we understand that. You know, back in my day, again, here again, kind of ages me, back in the 50s and 60s, 70s, you know, uh, it was pretty much limited to interstates, you know, houses, you know, convenience stores, interstates, things like that. Now we've got computers. And it's, it's available anywhere, anytime, anyhow. So the likelihood of you or your spouse or fiance coming in contact with it's pretty high. Matter of fact, if you think about it, uh, turn the TV on, watch commercial. You won't have to watch an hour's worth of commercials before you're probably gonna see something that's gonna be pretty closely uh, related to pornography. So like adultery, we need to be vigilant with each other. Men, we need to learn. Look away, you know. Uh, it's kind of, I can use King David as an example. Again, I love King David, you know. He, um, if you remember him and Bathsheba, King David walked out onto the balcony and he looked and there was a naked woman down there. You know, that's a form of pornography. There's a naked woman down there. He looked onto the housetop and saw the naked women. What should he have done? Look away. When you turn away and look away. And the same thing with, with any kind of pornography or anything. Look away. You know, we don't have to stand and stare and look. We can look away. David didn't. Now, fortunately, God has put that in his word for our benefit to see. He didn't look away. And the result of that was murder and all kinds of deceit. A quote from John Henderson again. This little fox can wreak havoc in your marriage vineyard. Pornography. Now, pornography distorts the reality of our sexual union. Physical sex usually pleases the body. Images of sex can please the body too. Arousing another person sexually outside the marriage bed, it can be intoxicating because it feeds on pride and gives us glory. Why should it not surprise us that pornography can be so attractive and so enticing to our flesh. Pornography, it takes a good gift of God that we talked about, one meant for true worship, and it makes it a false idol. It takes that beautiful picture of Christ and the church, 
which is, to be, which is given the glory to God and gives that glory to self-gratification and self-glory. Pornography corrupts the relationship between the created and the creator. It's like all sin. It drives a spike between man and God, attempting to rob, to rob God of his glory. I love Job's understanding of this when he said in Job 31, he said in Job 31, verses 2 and 4, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze on a virgin? And what is the portion of God from above or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Does he not see my ways and number my steps? Job understood that in order to continue his relationship with God, he had to make a covenant with his eyes, not to look on those things, i.e. bodies of others, that could and would damage his relationship with the Savior. Christ understood the state of our hearts concerning this in Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to desire her has already committed adultery, adultery with his heart. And that could be run right along with pornography, the looking, the seeing. Have we ever thought about that in Scripture this way? He's talking about looking, lusting after her body in a sexual, sensual way. And again, I would say, look away. Look away. So pornography destroys and damages our relationship with God and Christ. It also can destroy our relationship between husband and wife. It can make a husband or wife feel unworthy. It could make them feel undesirable. Uh, they're not pretty enough or handsome enough or desirable. And often the pornography is hidden in the home or in the heart, so it can destroy trust in the relationship. As I said earlier, it's addictive. It, control our, it can control our thoughts and our minds, and it makes us dwell on it. We take it to bed. And like any addition, addiction, it sneaks up on us, and we tell ourselves we can quit any time. Just like cigarettes, it, it doesn't work that way. Because flesh has no power to refuse itself. God must intervene. That's what true repentance comes, where true repentance comes in, working through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Need to keep track. Ow. I'm not gonna make it. And I thought I was reading pretty fast. Okay. So past sexual abuse. A lot of people have been hurt by past sexual abuses, and I cannot begin to comprehend that, what that must be like. Lately, it's come to light, and obviously the Catholic Church's priests have abused children that were entrusted to them. Um, and we know the sexual abuse can be committed by anybody. It can be friends, family, um, anybody. And they can happen in childhood or adolescence or previous, uh, maybe even young adult years. And some of us, some people that have gone through it, they've learned to speak about it you know, and talk about it with some kind of ease and comfort. Some have not. Um, and perhaps keeping that hidden in their hearts. And some, some may have enjoyed years of healing and some may still be emotionally scarred and, and uh, stirred by the memories. Yeah, I do know the effects of sex, sexual abuse can be painful and gripping. The effects on a marriage can be equally painful those affected may not even see or understand how it can affect a relationship until the time comes when the memories come. That's why I would encourage anyone that's had 
any kind of sexual abuse, uh, dealing with it, to seek someone to talk to and pray with those experiences and seek help from others when needed. And to know that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ frees us from the wicked effects and other people's sins that are against us. And sometimes, however dirty or, or ashamed we may feel, we are cleansed by Jesus Christ. And I think that's important. Even though we're not guilt, the guilty party, we may sometimes feel like we are, and all sense of dignity may be lost. And we just need to let the, the comfort of the gospel be with us. The Bible reminds us we are chosen of God, holy and beloved. It tells us we have been washed by his grace and made whiter than snow. There's no sin perpetrated against us that can ever change that. Nothing. I say nothing. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, Romans 8.39. If you have experienced sexual abuse in the past and sexual union in marriage, that may be a challenge for you. It may not. There may be struggles. There may not. No, what, no matter what, I pray the love of Christ be your anchor. I pray his grace and love for you be sufficient. His love is deep, it's strong, it's unending. So talk, pray, trust God, be patient. Learn to love the way Jesus loves. To quote John again, let your marriage tell, tell whatever story God may be seeking to tell through it. Let it be a testimony of his grace and power in the midst of whatever sorrows may be present. There are other significant problems in other areas. I'd like to address a bunch of those. We've addressed, we've addressed a couple of biggies. Let's look at some of the other areas just for a second. If we walk in selfish pride, we'll have problems. If there's aggression and violence in the home, we'll have problems with intimacy. If there's bitterness and resentment in your hearts towards one another, there'll be problems. If you're disconnected mentally and spiritually, you're going to have problems. God has designed our sexual selves to be in harmony with the rest of the marriage. So when our marriage is in trouble, so is that sexual harmony. In the end, selfless lovers make the sweetest lovers. God has created both the husband and wife with equal ability to satisfy the other, and to, glorify, to glorify Christ. And therefore, gracious words, cheerful service, and good conversation all carry over into the marriage bed. If you desire to have a growing, loving sexual union with your mate, you need to begin with your heart with God. And the nature of human life, joy and, and consistent, satisfying sex in a marriage can be interrupted by the, reality, the realities of life. Sickness, stress, exhaustion, and the stuff that we do in life, they make it more challenging and as the older we get, the more we realize this. And then you take all those things in this modern world that all of us have to deal with, which keeping up with the Joneses, just making a living, just trying to get along with each other. We take all that stuff, and then we throw in the mix a bunch of kids. And that makes it even a little more difficult, doesn't it? Sometimes the stuff we do can't be avoided. Sometimes they're self-imposed. Sometimes... I'm a workaholic. I have been my whole life. My wife will tell you that. So those things get in the way. Um, we need to be careful about them. They need to be avoided. We need to try to work things out. Sometimes keeping up with the Joneses and other things, they just, they just make it hard. 
And sometimes the Lord brings us into circumstances where sexual union is impossible for periods of time. It can be frustrating, confusing. Uh, there are some exceptions that impact our sexual union. There will be men and women who grow in Christ, they grow in love for their spouse, and they use, lose their ability to have sex in certain ways. Could be the effects of chemotherapy, for example, could be damage to the body from an accident or disease. And there, you know, these and others can reduce a, a married couple's sexual capabilities. Age sometimes plays a part in our ability to have what we used to call normal sexual union. Age and time can, can and they do change the nature of sex. Our bodies change over time, causing fatigue, maybe impotence and the ability to, to, to do things like we used to do when we were younger. And trust me, this can cause, can cause frustration, it can cause embarrassment. It takes a real Christ-centered thought and relationship with our spouse. It's where that oneness comes in, where we're one with one another. We can back each other in and know each other in these times when, when, when it's difficult to work it out together. But still much pleasure and intimacy can still be enjoyed with each other if they're willing to accept each other as how they are with the idea of not looking on their own pleasure, but that of the other. Therefore, I would argue that those very couples, which might be considered exceptions, could be every bit as satisfied and delighted in their sexual relationship as ever before, simply because the grace of God prevails upon their soul and blesses what other forms of sexual celebration they continue. Now, most people who married, they're not gonna face these kinds of unique circumstances. Nevertheless, God's view of his design is meant to be selfless and a joyful process that will last a married couple their lifetime. Let's pray. Father, our heart comes before you, Lord, We're praying that Christ be raised and magnified in all we do this day. Father, we thank you for those that have come out this morning, Lord, we pray that in some small way that, Lord, that you are lifted up. Father, we thank you for the blessings we receive. We pray for the service this morning, Lord. We pray that, Lord, our hearts be open to your design, Lord, that you teach us and nurture us through this ministry this morning. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.